today's scripture reading comes from Psalms 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when, morning, when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the work of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My assignment today was one year in the making, so I think God had prepared me for a year uh, before standing here before you and share the word. So I can die happy now. (laughs) It's a long time in the making. But I think I have the sentiment of Frank Sinatra when he says, if you can make it there, meaning New York, you can make it anywhere. So I will apply it to our situation. If you can preach in Ed City, Mineola, you can preach anywhere. Amen to that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I, uh, well, wait a minute, before I forget something, I'd like to introduce my wife, Ellie. Please stand to be recognized. There she is. I'll be in trouble when we go home. So <clears throat> I was in uh, high school when I learned survival in the mountain, away from the civilization. That's in the Philippines. So high school kids, college kids were there all together. We went up to the mountain without anything, without any water. But our leader told or taught us how to find water. So from the uh, hilltop, we went, down, we went down all the way to the stream, and he asked us like three meters away from the stream and dig like three feet hole. But the water came muddy and brown, so I didn't ask the question, why is that water brown? The leader said, let's go up and prepare our tent and prepare our fire. So we went up. Three hours later, the leader told us, let's go down and get water. To my mind, it's like, you mean brown water? You mean the muddy water? Let's go down. When we went down, the water was already clear. It was fresh and refreshing. So I said, this is how you survive. Find water next to the stream, dig three feet of, uh, of a hole, and there you go. 
the water will come out. That's how I actually my illustration, the way I approach our lesson today. Since our series is on Psalms and uh, poetry, I love poetry. You could ask my wife, I think that endeared me to her because I keep on writing poetries and give it to her and to other girls around also. So the problem was I didn't get the original. I just write and write and give it away, give it away, and they were happy. So I love it. And when I moved here in Long Island, I was glad to know that one American classical poet, which is Walt Whitman, lived here. Do you know about that? Yeah. Matter of fact, in Huntington, they built a mall in honor of his name. And then the, uh, the architects thought that it would be nice to engrave verses from the poem of, uh, of Walt Whitman outside the wall of the mall. That rhymes, right? That's one. Have you heard of Khalil Gibran? Oh, nice. We can talk later. But he, is, he was a Lebanese poet and the author of The Prophet. The second rhyme. Two points. <clears throat> but let me check Google first and see and share with you some of his verses. In the sweetness of friendship, let there be laughter and sharing of pleasures. For in the dew of little things, the heart finds its morning and its refreshed. Another one. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are, scared, are seared with scars. One more. Life without love is like a tree without blossoms or fruit. That's Khalil Gibran for you. But the book of Psalms is a different story. I took the challenge with a little bit of anxiety and fear because of the enormity of the task. Just imagine 150 chapters. 150 chapters. So I kept asking myself, which chapter, which verse, and I could easily go to the safest and easiest route, tackling Psalm chapter 1, maybe Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that's easy. Psalm 55, repentance of David, that's easy as well. But God is impressing on me Psalm 46, verse 10. Very specific. And I kept on arguing with God like, that's tough. That's difficult to tackle. God is impressing on me and that. And the more I tried to ignore, the more God kept on impressing into my heart Psalm 46, verse 10. And if God were a New Yorker, he would scream at me, shut up. Just do it. And I made my peace with God. I said, all right, let me find some spiritual gleanings from Psalm 46, verse 10. I have a secret I'll share with you. Please don't tell it to Pastor Na or to other members who are going to Little Neck. That I gave them Little Neck last Sunday the whole chapter. Psalm chapter 
uh, 46 verses 1 to 10. But with you, I'm being easy on you. It's only one verse. Only one verse. But the irony of studying the word, the longer the chapter, the shorter the message. The shorter the verse, the longer the message. So please close the door. No one is leaving until 2 o'clock. And I told Pastor Nine, Pastor, uh, uh, Pastor Finn, I say, read through Psalm 46, verse uh, 1 to 10. I saw a lot of messages that I could teach you in the next two months. Without really bragging, I see messages after messages, but I said, control yourself. You are only preaching verse 10. Only one verse. So buckle up. You are in for a ride. So today we shall try to look into three God truths out of Psalm 46 verse 10. The hymn, this is the hymn that could build our confidence to put our trust and faith in the Almighty God. First God truth, the permanent divine injunction. God said, be still. Just like the way you're sitting there. Be still. God's permanent divine injunction. Now, there is a legal implications of the order, be still. What's an injunction, you may ask? An injunction is a court order requiring a person to do or to cease doing a specific action. In this case, God is ordering us to be still. And legally, there are three kinds of injunctions. One, the preliminary, it's about the hearing. The second one is the temporary restraining order. So after the hearing, judge said, all right, we will give you a restraining order who's making the life of the other party miserable. The last kind of injunction is permanent. That's why we say God's permanent divine injunction. Why? Because God is permanent. God is an ever-present help. That's why we have this permanent injunction. Let's concentrate on this one. Now let's take a look at the Hebrew definition of the order, be still. One, stop from fighting the enemy or the enemies of God and for God. In other words, stand your ground. Do not engage. Be still. Also, cease from striving to defeat the enemies of God. Striving is an extended effort of trying to win a losing battle. Are we there? Are we 
striving to pursue winning in this battle or a losing battle. Striving is a continued exercise in futility to win a losing battle. No wonder we, most Christians, are defeated because we are fighting for God, whereas, a matter of fact, we should not be. And then we get so guilty because we are defeated. We became hopeless. So stop from fighting the enemy or the enemies of God. Cease from striving to win the losing battle. After you, do, you have done that, take a pause. Reflect. Reflect on what you are doing for God to win this battle. Or the other option is reflect on what God is doing and can do to give you a winning perfection. You want to lose? Fight for God. You want to win? Let God fight for you. So in other words, God is saying, just be still. It's not your battle, according to the song. Thank you for choosing that song. See a victory. The battle is not ours. God's. Don't assume or don't usurp the authority of God being the Almighty doing all the fighting for us. It's a losing battle. We can't win. But if you want to keep that way, don't follow the order of God's permanent injunction. Be still. And then the Greek indication of be still is that to stand empty-handed, meaning to say whatever you are holding on to fight for and with God, drop it. Let go of what you're holding on. It could be mental. It could be financial. And it could be a physical strength. Just drop it. Drop your weapons. Not only you are in, we need to be standing empty-handed, we also need to be unoccupied. Do not engage in any shape or form. When the police officer Raise the hand like this. What does it mean? Stop. God's hand, even though we don't see it at the moment, is right in front of us. Stop fighting. Cease from striving. Let go of whatever weapons you are holding on to use in winning this battle. Be still is a permanent divine injunction. It's not a plea. It's not a bargaining agreement. It's either you do it or you don't. It's either you win or you lose. If you allow God to fight for you, for us, we belong to the majority. 
But if God is not in the picture of our battle, no matter if we become 1,000, even though we become a mega church, Lord willing, we belong to the minority. Minority or majority? That's your choice. So after uh, establishing this multidimensional meaning of be still, we need to ask the first question. What is the negative aspect of be still? I could give you one. It does not mean motionless. Be still and worship God. It does not mean speechless. Be still and yet talk to God. It doesn't mean hearing less. Be still and listen to God. It doesn't mean thinking less. Be still and yet reflect, meditate, ruminate, consider God who is fighting for you, for us. It does not mean not seeing less. Be still and yet be farsighted and at the same time, nearsighted. That's 2020 vision. You see near, you see far. But most Christians are nearsighted. We only see the here and now. We don't see far. Like one year down the line, what do you want to be as a Christian? Five years down the line, what would you consider as something you could contribute to edify God's people. So after considering the negative aspect of being still, what are the battles? This is a thought-provoking question. What are the battles we need to cease striving from? One, the battle of sustaining the status quo. This is the battle between, listen to this. This is the battle between superficiality or transparency. Stop pretending that we are okay as a church going Christian, but we really are not okay, or even if we are inside the church trying to be okay. Let your guard down. Take off your mask. It's okay not to be okay. But how are you doing today? Are we okay? But on this side, how are we doing? Are we okay? What is not okay is when we do not cease from striving to maintain our status quo, and then we go home without the joy of the Lord. That's tragic. Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, we put on the mask, I'm okay. But deep within, we are not. There's no shame in admitting we are not okay. Because that is the only time God can intervene and help us out so that we can win this battle. I have bad news for you. 
if you are doing this, sustaining the status quo, we're not in this to win it. This is not a winning battle. If we keep on putting our masks, pretending we are okay, but we are not. Matter of fact, it's not hard, it's not difficult, it is impossible to maintain our status quo. Because, take it to heart, God's permanent injunction, be still, God is the sustainer of our faith. Not this church or any other church you're happening to. It's not the pastors, not any one of the pastors. Not the ministries even. Not ourselves. Only Him. Only God. The Almighty can do that for us. The second battle is the battle of a senseless living in a godless world. This is the battle between living with a purpose or existing without a purpose. If we are all together here in this church and we don't have any purpose at all, we are coexisting. They want to live, have a purpose. Get a purpose, find your purpose. And you will discover the kind of life that has a God-given purpose. What do you, how do you answer your friend, your family, or your coworker in asking for the hope? And we are, as a matter of fact, hopeless case. We can offer anything. It's not because we are a hopeless case, it's just that we are purposeless. And we cannot sustain the ministry with that. Now, some of you come here because you want the contemporary worship, right? Nothing wrong with that. Not, no one should judge you for that. Or some go to the uh, traditional uh, worship service before us. Nothing wrong with that. No one should judge you of that. But that's not a purpose. It's a preference. See the difference? Preference. What kind of worship you want to go to? Or purpose, you ask, why am I here? Not to fill up those pews. I don't care if only five people show up today. I'm not here to share the word because you prefer to hear me. It won't work. It won't bring you joy when you get out of this door. So even if you say, I don't want to come today because uh, Celso is speaking today, I don't care. It's not your purpose. It's your preference. So just like the immature Christian, carnal Christian in, the, in Corinth, Paul said, some of you said you would like to hear Paul. Some of you would like to hear Silas. 
Some of you would like to hear Peter. And some of you, the over super spiritual said, we are of Christ. That's cute to hear. But if you are with Christ or of Christ and you are still dividing the body of Christ, you are really not of Christ. That's your preference. You think you are with Christ because that's your preference. What's your purpose? Why are you here? Why are you sitting down there? Have you asked yourself the question, what does God want me to do in this church? You may say, well, I don't want to do anything. I just come here every Sunday, sit here, and then go home, and come back next Sunday, 52 weeks, and just going back and forth. That's your choice. That's your preference. If I can help you defining your purpose, someone will define your purpose for this church or for any other church you're going to. So long that church is Bible-believing, teaching the right doctrine regarding justification by faith. And then, of course, if we don't have a sense of purpose here, the third battle that we are engaged in now is the battle for struggling faith. We are struggling as a Christian. You know why? Because you have no purpose or we as a church has no purpose. This church, Ed City Church, was not built just to build its own dynasty or little kingdom. Ed City Church has a purpose to bring the gospel not only here in New York, in Greece, in Rwanda, Lord willing, next year, Philippines. We have a God-given purpose why we are gathering today. So if you are struggling in the faith, there are at least three things that you are experiencing right now. One, you're discouraged. After being discouraged, you get depressed. Not the mental depression, spiritual depression, I call it. Because you are trying to do more than you could do with no result or less result. Then once you get depressed, you get defeated. When you're struggling in your faith, trying to claw your, your, uh, your faith back to God, you will always drop. You will always drop. Because that's not how God works. So, remind, remember, God's order for us is be still. You don't have to fight back, returning to God. Let God fight for you so you can return back to God. The fourth battle would be the sacrificial offering. 
This is the battle between acceptable offering or rejected offering. Cain strived to give his best offering and was rejected because God wants bloody sacrifice, type of Christ, in other words. King Saul strived to give the best sheep but was rejected because obedience is better than sacrifice. Number three, the wealthy Cornelius went to the temple, offered this offering, and yet God said, that is just a memorial about God. Wait for Peter, he will come to your household and preach the gospel. And then he got saved. So our lesson regarding the battle for sacrificial offering is this. Stop striving to please God of your sacrificial offering, whether it's your time, whether it's your talent, or whether it's your treasure. Because God will not accept those offerings. It will be rejected. Just follow God's permanent injunction. Be still. Stop fighting. Stop striving. The fifth battle, the battle of secularism in engaging for God. This is the battle between uh, secular versus the spiritual. For example, King Saul gave David all the weaponries he could use to defeat Goliath. David said, nope, I'm just bringing my slingshot and five stones. And yet with one stone, he already killed Goliath. Not secular weaponries are we going to win this battle. Gideon. Gideon has 32,000 armies. And they are so, uh, the ratio was what I call unfair. Four to one. Their enemy has four soldiers. Gideon has one. Even if he has 32,000 soldiers, God said, ask them who is scared. Of course, I will be scared. Sending me to an army that is four to one. I'm not going to win it. So Gideon asked, who is scared among you? From 32,000, it became 12,000, meaning 20 soldiers were really, really scared. Then the 1,200 was even minimized into 300, all because of just drinking the water. And think of like, is that social ethics? Is that kind of some form of discipline? And God said, anyone who kneels by the water and drink straight out of the water, eliminate them. They don't have discipline. So uh, let's do my math because I'm not very good with numbers. So 1,200 minus 300, 12,000 minus 300 is what? Like 11,700. We're eliminated. Why? Because numbers do not represent God. Two, with numbers, we will be 
bragging that it's because of our human strength and human resources, we prevail. God would like to eliminate that option. So he said, Gideon, take only 300. And yet they won. You want to win in this church? One, if you're scared of being here, what might the pastors or other leaders would ask you to do? Question, who are you here representing? Are you representing yourself or God? Are you here because we are growing in numbers? I love to be in this church. God is not represented by numbers. There's no way, no how God would be pleased because all the pews here are taken, including upstairs. And then Daniel, remember Daniel? When God wants him to grow strong, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar wants him to grow strong, he said, Daniel, drink the king's wine, meaning the choicest wine, and also drink the king's meat, meaning the choicest meat. And Daniel said, I'm not going to take any of that. I'll be a vegetarian. I think he's the first vegetarian uh, recorded in the Bible. And what happened? He grew strong and stronger because of what he prefers. Because it is not physical. It is spiritual battle. Now, when God becomes, listen to this, when God becomes just a concept, an idea, or a theological formula, or a community sentiment like what we are doing to a higher being without any personal relationship with God. What we are doing is secularism at its best. I'm sorry to disappoint you. If, you, if, if what you think or how you think today about God is just a concept, an idea, or a community sentiment, we are a secularistic church. According to Harvey Cox, the professor of divinity school in Harvard, he wrote a series of books on secularism. And we fall on that category if we are here because we are worshiping a God who is just a concept, who is just an idea, who is just a theological formula, or just a community sentiment that we are worshiping God. But matter of fact, we are not. Why? Because we are trying to fight for God. That's not how we worship God. We worship God because we give him the strength, the power, and the glory. So question. Are we doing this because of our secular point of view or a spiritual point of view about God? The last one, I think, is the battle for granting forgiveness. This is solid. This is the battle to bless us 
I'm sorry, this is the battle to bless versus unforgiveness. Another rhyme, another point. When we deny or withhold or don't grant forgiveness to any person who had sinned against us, you know what happens? Satan uses that to take advantage of us. Meaning he will keep on dividing, dividing the church from within without knowing it. Like, for example, if somebody offended you, what is your, what is your immediate action when you enter the, that, that uh, door? Ah, no, I'm sitting here. Are you looking at the other side? Uh, no, I'm sitting here. That's how Satan is taking advantage of us by simply not forgiving the person who offended us. It can happen. Mary's experienced divorce for one simple solution, unforgiveness. Whoever is the offending party, when there is no forgiveness, the option is, let's plead. That's why I don't like the idea of prenuptial agreement. Maybe I'm old school. But you are already preconditioning the couple that when something happened, we can easily get a divorce. That's the motivation there of signing a prenuptial agreement. And if you did or did not, I really don't know your marital history and I don't want to know about it, but I am presenting to you the issue of granting forgiveness. Let us cease from striving to withhold forgiveness to any person who lied to us, who crossed us, who offended us, who disrespected us. Wait a minute. I'm not talking about the pastors, right? No, I'm not talking about the pastors. Maybe somebody in your life that did something that truly, truly offended you. Or something what we call, or the Bible calls, unforgivable sins. Or somebody hurt your kids, your wife, your husband, your family. And that you come to church, you know, wearing nice clothes, pretending I'm okay, but we're not okay. If we come here without forgiving anybody who had offended you, we are not okay. We are not okay. Before you enter this, uh, this door, make sure, or even before you come here from your house, Make sure you make peace with God and telling God, Lord, I have forgiven him. I have, for I have forgiven her. Whoever is the offending party, let go of unforgiveness. Grant forgiveness to anyone who offended us. So after understanding the divine injunction, be still, the second God truth is the practical divine 
imposition. God said, be still and know. That is actually the divine sequence. Right here, we are thinking, I don't need to be still. I will be fighting for God, and I will know what God wants uh, for me to hear. Not going to happen. You cannot know the way, the truth, and the life if you don't follow the order, be still. Divine sequence. Be still and know. It's not the other way around. So let's try defining to know using the Hebrew meaning of to know. One, to know, with, which God used here, is to perceive truth equals absorbing truth equals ab apprehending clearly and with certainty the truth equals claiming the truth without being double-minded of any hint of doubt. That's the Hebrew meaning. The Greek meaning, to understand beyond basic information. Have you read Romans 1.21? Even if they knew God, basic information, they glorified him not as God. So, Clearly, to know here is not simply an intellectual exercise of finding or pursuing the truth. It is not just a cognitive agreement to the truth after finding it. It is not a mere shallow or superficial acknowledgement of perceived truth, such as our doctrinal statement of ECC. So it happened in the Philippines, there's about a very <clears throat> vocal new member of the church. And he's been saying, you know, I'm a member of this church, blah, blah, blah. And so someone was, got curious. So he was asked, so what does your church believe? The new member said, well, my church believes what I believe. Oh, so what do you believe? Well... My, I believe what my church believes. So this is just begging the question because his knowledge of the truth is here. If you get the knowledge and that knowledge did not sink in here, you know how far you are from heaven? 12 inches. Just 12 inches close. Just like what King Agrippa said. Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. It was here. It didn't went down here. Listen, thank you for coming today. Filling up the pews. But my question to you, do you have a cognitive agreement of what I'm talking about here or any other pastors here without sinking it down here in the heart. If you are here and you have been hearing sermon after sermon without understanding the way of salvation and you are here and you are not 
sure whether you are going to heaven or not. And according to that definition of the word to know, you are 12 inches away from heaven. You're getting there, but make sure you come here. Not because of your mental exercise of pursuing and understanding the truth. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, the disciples were with Jesus, and Jesus was making a survey. He asked the disciples, what do you think men say about the Son of Man? Well, somebody volunteered, well, they thought you're John the Baptist, or you are Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus ignored the Paul survey from the people who are, don't have a personal relationship with him. So then he went to ask the disciples, how about you? What do you think of the Son of Man? Of course, Peter volunteered the answer, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus didn't say, you really are a smart dude, Peter. I like your style. Nope. Christ said, Peter, you, no one, no man has taught you this truth. Only God the Father can help you understand the truth about me. Same thing with us. Unless God the Father bestow upon us his grace in understanding the truth, we will be staying 12 inches away from heaven. No matter how your intention is great to know God. John chapter 3, you, you heard about Nicodemus? A Pharisee. He went there by night for fear that the people will do something against him. So he went by night and asked Jesus, Rabbi, You are from God. No one can do this unless he is from God. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. So Nicodemus, in his earthly frame of mind or understanding, asked Jesus, How it's gonna be? Should I, should me myself needs to be born again, physically coming from my mother's womb? That's physical thinking, earthly minded. Jesus said, no, you need to be born by water, that's physical, and you need to be born by the Holy Spirit. You need to be born again. I don't know your standing about being born again but please be careful. One cannot be born again and again and again and again. Yes? You agree? Jesus said, you must be born again, period. 
So if you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are already on your way to heaven. The truth you received and comprehended and apprehended and claim in your heart today, whatever happens in these uncertain times, you are definitely going to heaven. Don't take my word for it. Take the promise of Jesus. If you will be born again today, you will be considered a child of God because you believe in Jesus. So the third uh, God truth, after we saw the permanent divine injunction and then the practical divine imposition to know, finally, and this is the meat, you know, it's like the water. It was still muddy at the beginning. The first point and the second point. Now this should give us the living water wherein we will not be thirsty again. Verse 10 again. Be still and know that I am God. I think this is the reason why I am scared to say the word God here, because of the Hebrew word Yahweh. The ancient scribes who were writing down uh, the books of Moses and the other Old Testament, when they encountered the word Yahweh, they washed their hands seven times, maybe more. Because they are so unclean to write the name of God, Yahweh. It's the same thing with me. I felt so unworthy to declare the name of God. Not because I want to be cute, but I am unworthy. Every one of us is unworthy to declare the name of God. That's why I don't need to say anything more to further introduce God. Listen to this. God is the only one who can introduce himself to us. Let me say that again. Only God can introduce himself to us. If we are introducing God, it would be on you, we are using the third person. Just like verse one. He is our refuge. But now that God is introducing himself to us, he could say, I am God who is your refuge. Yes, verse 1. I am God who is your strength. I am God who is your ever-present help. I am God because I am your refuge. I am your fortress in verse 7. You don't have to listen to me. Listen to the voice of God. You need more? Hang on. Psalm chapter 41, I'm sorry. Psalm chapter 1 verses, I mean Psalm chapter 1 to chapter 41, it emphasizes God is the great I am because he is beside us. Psalm 42 
to 72, God is the great I am who is before us. Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, God is the great I am all around us. Psalm 90 to 106, God is the great I am who is above us. And Psalm 107 to 150, God is among us. He's sitting next to you, even though you don't see him. He's right there in those empty pews because God is among us. Do we believe that? Do we really, really believe that? Question. Why is it when we pray, we ask God to please be with us? So like if, like if I am praying, God be with us. Here God is looking at... Well, we keep on praying, Lord, be with us with much emotion. God next to you is like... Don't pray. I'm beside you, I'm before you, I'm above you, I'm among you. And if someone comes here who is a stranger, that stranger will know God is among us. Not because he just promised it, but because we believe it. Because we believe it. Let me close this lesson with this illustration. In April of 1521, Martin Luther was asked to appear before the Diet of Worms in Germany because Charles, uh, King Charles V organized this council, religious leaders, for Mark to pressure Martin Luther to recant of his 95 theses regarding justification by faith. So that night, Martin Luther and his friend Melanchthon was meditating on, guess what chapter? Guess what chapter they are meditating on? Psalm 46. And Luther told Melanchthon, let's sing Psalm 46 and let the devil do his worst. And Psalm 46 is the reason why Luther wrote the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So today, we don't want to leave this place with the head knowledge that, okay, He is God, but we want that knowledge to go down deep into our hearts. If anybody today, this is your chance to say, yes, Lord, you are God. I believe in you. I believe in your son. And if you are still struggling in your faith regarding God and his relationship with you, would you mind raising your hand? Raising your hand, not to embarrass you, 
just to tell God, God, I'm not okay. God, I am struggling in my faith. God, I have not been following your order to be still so that I can know you. And today, I would like to open my heart to you. Anybody who needs prayer? And if everyone here is not struggling, thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, Jesus. Everyone is okay. But make sure when you leave this place, you have a joyful heart. You were blessed with that clear, refreshing water of the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, it's truly difficult to talk about you. Especially if we are just understanding your truth. Like a baby. But today, we thank you for bringing us together as your family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And may it be that as you have promised, your finale is glorious. And it will happen when you said, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the Gentiles. O oh Lord, be gracious and be merciful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.